Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. What if I told you that the message of hell could be good news? I see some... Some faces saying, I don't think so. Maybe hell itself maybe is never good news, but maybe, in fact, as I'll argue this morning, maybe there's a part of the message of hell as presented in Scripture that actually does turn out to be good news. Maybe it really is true that Christianity is about good news, gospel. That it's not about avoiding bad news, and it's not about good news and then bad news and good news or bad news and then good news, then bad news and more good news. But from the beginning to the end, it's good news. And if there's a message about hell somewhere in there, then it fits into that message of good news somehow. What if it's good news all the way down? I know why this seems like it might be difficult to imagine, because hell is a tough word, right? Hell hell is a, a loaded word. Hell is a harsh word. Hell is an offensive word. Hell is a strong word. Hell is a a word and a concept that's so difficult for so many people. Some people have been traumatized by presentations about hell when when they were a child. Others have found it hard to believe or integrate into their faith. And and for many, that's one of the top reasons they have a hard time following Christ. They have a hard time belonging to a church. Is is the way sometimes the church teaches about hell or, or wields the message of hell as a weapon against other people. But I... I would want to suggest that we have the message of hell in the scriptures, even that word, that language, because it's, in a sense, needed. Sometimes strong words are needed. Sometimes offensive language is needed. Sometimes you need a word that matches the reality you're trying to describe or warn against. Sometimes you might think the word that might best communicate your thoughts at this moment is a word I probably shouldn't say in public and polite conversation. Now, I know not you all, you're very holy people. Sometimes in my own life, I come across a situation where some words that are forming in my head would be words I probably wouldn't say with a microphone on. And I don't do it because I think it's cool. That's why I got tattoos. I, they come to my mind because I think they fit, Right? It fits. Some agonizing situations need agonizing words. And sometimes destruction feels fiery. Sometimes injustice makes the heat go up a little bit in the room. Sometimes hell, maybe, is a word that is is needed. Sometimes it fits. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I've had it as a pastor where I've had occasion to sit across from somebody who is in the heart of grief or suffering, the kind of suffering that is just a possibility in the world that we live in. Sometimes self-inflicted, self-destructive behavior, sometimes inflicted by other people. And if, if you've ever sat across from someone and, and you've heard that story and you've listened to them, and you've listened to what someone has done to another human being, sometimes the, the nice word doesn't fit. Sometimes the word the word that, that, that fits that, that puzzle piece. It's a strong word. 
It's a volatile world. It's a world that's supposed to shock a little bit. It's supposed to shake a little bit. So we're, we're in a sermon series on hell, which is, I mean, just everyone's favorite topic to go through. But, but one of the things we, we try to pride ourselves on here at, at Sweetwater is, is really not avoiding any topics. And so this was, a lot of requests came in to talk about hell, and, and we said, we'll do it. We'll do a deep dive. We're not afraid to ask questions. We're not afraid to challenge. We're not afraid to think new things. We want to come to the scriptures with an open mind, and we want to tackle things, especially things that are hard or, or sometimes feel like they can't be discussed or questions that can't be asked. And so last week, we, we started off this series, and I just kind of laid a, a little foundation for you about the diversity of beliefs about the afterlife when it comes to hell in Christian history and tradition and even today across the globe. And you can go back in and listen to that. There's three main camps. And, and I said, I think all three of these camps are Christian camps. In our little church, there are people who fall into each one of these camps. I know them personally. And they all love Jesus. And they all take the Bible very seriously. None of them are like really like far-right, violent fundamentalist people who just really want to see everyone go to hell. No, they, they just believe this is what Scripture teaches. And none of them are like, super far-left liberals who are just like, no one could ever be hurt. Everything's beautiful. No, they, they think this is the logic of Scripture. They think this is where the, the message is leading. I actually sat down and counted, because I also said last week, if you were to ask people to give you specifics about what hell might or might not be like, you'd probably get as many different answers as the amount of people you asked. It's surprising to most people how little uniformity there is in the Christian world about this topic, which should clue us in that there's freedom here. There's a discussion to be had. There are questions to be asked. It's okay to disagree. So I sat down and, and came up with 12 completely different understandings of what hell may or may not be like by 12 different, very well-respected scholars, writers about the Bible, that almost all of which have been read by at least one person in this room. Um, collectively together, they've all been read. And all 12 of these, they all fall into one of those three camps, but even then they have the different flavors, right? And they're different. I mean, they're, they just believe different things. There's, there's some room to, to, to understand what's going on when the Scriptures talk about this kind of final judgment and, and what might be coming. And the reason there's diversity is because the Scriptures talk about it in a diverse way. And the reason Christians have theories about it is because the Scriptures talk about it. If it wasn't in here, we wouldn't... We wouldn't be forced to ask these questions. We wouldn't be forced to go, well, why, why is this happening? What, what does this mean? Can we be okay with this? Is this comfortable? What does this do for our lives? And so this morning, I want to go to the source, the man himself. This is the person we want to go to really with all our big questions. Jesus, God's self-revelation. Turns out, Jesus is the one who says the most things about hell in the Bible. So the two worlds match up perfectly here. So if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to, to join me in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we'll look at, at chapter 23 together. What I want to do this morning is, is do a, a quick but deep dive into what Jesus is, is most likely getting at when he uses the language of hell, what that might mean for our lives, and then perhaps another twist, how it could be perhaps good news or, or a part of the good news that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew 23. Now, if you have a Bible with subtitles above the chapter, it'll say something like the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. 
if, if Jesus ever comes across as too nice to you, Matthew 23 is your chapter, okay? This is about as angry as Jesus gets. This is about as harsh a language as Jesus uses. It's woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees are religious leaders at the time. These are the pastors. These are the faith leaders on, on Twitter, on the political panels. These are the people writing the books. And Jesus often reserves his harshest criticism for these people. And, and, and we'll read some of this together. Let's pick it up um, in verse 23. And we'll see some patterns that emerge as he's talking to them. And then we'll finally hit on, on when he gets to, to the, this four-letter four word here. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I think this is his main accusation. You'll see it again and again, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Just by the way... We prefer cash at Sweetwater. We've got a lot of, you know, very holistically healthy people here, and we love that. But save your mint and your dill. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, I'm sure you've never met a Christian or heard of a Christian group who went through all the religious rituals that they thought made them right in God's eyes, but neglected the big things like justice and mercy and righteousness. Now, this sits home still pretty heavy to me today. It's hard for me not to see examples of this most days. And if I'm being honest, and hopefully we can get to a point of honesty at church, it's hard for me not to accept that this is true of me at many, many times, many, many points in my life. Jesus says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So you don't have to choose between them. You blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus is not winning friends and influencing people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. The outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. This is, this is shocking language. This is a harsh critique, especially harsh to a Jewish person. The tomb is unclean. You're not even allowed to go into the temple if you've been interacting with this type of a situation. He says, you exist as this. You're a whitewashed tomb that outwardly appears beautiful, but within, you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but inside of you, it's just full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We're almost there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. This is always a dangerous game to play. When you look back on the sins of your fathers or ancestors or people before you, and you say, oh, if Jesus were here now, we wouldn't treat him like that. Or if this person was here now with that message, he wouldn't have become a martyr. Our society now would have accepted that. Prophets, prophets tend to be much more well-liked after they exit the scene. Just be careful with this. They were doing this, and Jesus, Jesus sees through that. Thus you witness against yourself that you're sons of the ones who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. 
you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? A shocking word, a heavy word, an offensive word, a violent word. Jesus looks at these religious leaders, lists off all the hypocrisies that they embody, and then he ends with this rhetorical question. And the question is, how do you expect to escape the punishment of hell with all that you're doing and all that you're being? What scenario in your mind gets you out of, out of this? Now, we know, but I'll remind you, Jesus is a first century Jewish man, God in the flesh, Christians believe, but first century Jew, he is not speaking English Jesus most likely never said out loud the word hell, those syllables, that sound. He's speaking a different language. And and when Jesus says hell, when it's translated in our Bibles, there's about 12 times, really, that's it, where you see hell in in your ESV English translation. Um, 11 of them are in the Gospels, said by Jesus. Most of them are in Matthew, and the ones in the other Gospels usually are just like similar stories. One is in James, but it's not talking about an afterlife. James personifies hell and says language that's not controlled. It sets the world on fire, like hell can set the world on fire. Um, When this word is used and it's introduced to us by Jesus, you don't see hell in the Old Testament or anything like that. It's a, a Greek word called Gehenna. And I want to suggest this morning that perhaps when we read ancient texts like the Scriptures, Sometimes we read assumptions and teachings into a word that may not have been there originally. Because over time, we get taught things and you assume things and traditions build up. And so what we mean when we say the English word hell, maybe that's not exactly what Jesus is getting at. It could be, but when he uses this language. So here's the word Jesus is using. Here's the word most likely translated as hell in your scriptures. Gehenna. On three, say that with me. One, two, three. Gehenna. Gehenna means Valley of Hinnom, or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Gehenna is a location. It's real estate. It is not just a very simple religious term for a metaphysical place or experience after death. That's how I think of the word, because I grew up in Christianity, and there's a long tradition of understanding the word hell that way. But perhaps when someone heard Gehenna, they thought of it a little bit differently than I might think of when I read the word hell. I would actually suggest maybe we could get a better clue into what Jesus is getting after if we just started to replace this. If we just went with Gehenna. Let's not translate it in this case. How, he says, do you expect to escape the punishment of Gehenna? Now, what's he talking about? What 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 have they thought about while he mentions this place? Turns out, Gehenna is a very well-known area. It has an infamous history. It's plays an active role in the Old Testament. The prophets often talk about it. In what we call Second Temple Judaism, so the time period before Jesus, but after the, New Test, uh, the Old Testament was written, people talk about Gehenna a whole lot. Different traditions arise about Gehenna. So let me give you the quick backstory to Gehenna. Gehenna 101, if you will. Gehenna is a valley, and it's southwest to the city of Jerusalem, right underneath Mount Zion. And so it forms like, kind of like a little L there on, on the, the, the left and the bottom. Um, And Gehenna becomes famous for a very tragic thing that happens. There once were two evil kings, Ahaz and Manasseh. And to try to get out of a political jam, they decided 
they weren't going to keep worshiping the one true living God of the scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God, Yahweh's his name, that they're instead going to commit idolatry and see if this other God will help them out. And so they turn to a God named Molech. Molech is famous from the ancient world for requiring child sacrifice. This is how you appease Molech. I would like to also suggest this morning that while we think of this as very barbaric, rightfully so, it could be the case that there are things in our lives, in our societies and civilizations, that we're also willing to sacrifice our children for. Maybe not in such a barbaric way, but you can often tell a lot about people's priorities by what they're willing to die for, or what they're willing for their kids to go off and die for. In any case, Ahabs and, and Manasseh, they decide, we're going to try to appease this God, see, see if he can help us get out of this jam. And so they go to this valley, and with flames, they sacrifice child upon child upon child upon child upon child upon child. It is a prime example of the kind of evil and suffering that's a possibility in the world that we live in, when human beings are given over to their self-destructive ways and tendencies, when we walk away from worshiping and following the living God who desires life for us and for others. A horrific, tragic situation. And God is very upset, as one might hope he would be. Very upset at what happens, and so there's judgment on this valley. It's a negative place. Um, I'm not a realtor. I've got a couple of friends who are, but I'm told if something tragic happens at a house or at a certain piece of land, sometimes that property value goes down. Gehenna becomes untouchable, right? No one's purchasing land or their, their rental share in, in Gehenna anymore. It's, 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 it's tainted, right? I mean, this is, this is a, a monument to one of the most horrific things that's happened in our history. And so later on, lots more fires come through this valley. So Josiah is a king who comes around, and he, he's trying to reform the people of God, get them back into some more obedient ways. And one of the things he decides to do is to burn the valley again. And then dig up the bones and leave them out scattered as a reminder to everybody. Do you remember when we walked away from God? And it led us to do things like this. This is the judgment that happens when human beings... Go after their own ways. This is what we experience. This is what sin leads to. And then when the Assyrians come an empire later and, and they destroy the northern part of Israel, Gehenna becomes a very convenient dumping place for, for corpses. And so thousands upon thousands of corpses just kind of get dumped there. Now, if you, if you read stuff about hell or Gehenna, you, you, you might hear that at the time of Jesus, it was the city dump. And so there's probably fire going on all the time. People threw their trash out in there. There have been wild animals around there. I'm here to tell you, I'm not sure about that. It's an idea that got kind of formulated and passed around a whole lot among people, and people have kind of assumed. But as a theologian, if I'm writing a paper and presenting it in an academic society, I'm not putting that in my paper because there's just not any real evidence for it. Doesn't mean it's not true. Or it couldn't have been true. All we just really have is a later opinion of a person who says it seems like this could be the case. We do know that Gehenna keeps having fires and tragedy, though. So in AD 70, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Jewish people 
come under attack by the Romans. They keep kind of prompting and poking at the Roman Empire. They want to get rid of them, revolt, overthrow. The Romans come in and crush them. And Josephus, an early ancient historian, tells a story about what happened to the people who were destroyed in Jerusalem. They were dumped in Gehenna. So, so maybe it would help us break out of the like traps we have with assumptions to try to find an example. What would maybe be an equivalent? There's nothing perfect, obviously, but uh, I've thought about this, and, and, and maybe this might help us think about hearing Gehenna like someone might have heard it, not just as like hell as this well-developed concept. What if instead of Gehenna, Jesus was here, and he was preaching, and if He's going to be like the Gospels. His message is going to include hell. Jesus talks about final judgment and hell quite a bit. Now, he talks about the final judgment in terms other than Gehenna. So sometimes he talks about it as being thrown out to an outer darkness or being burned up, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sometimes it's just destruction, being, being thrown out, being excluded. Um, so Gehenna is just one part of a larger um, toolbox Jesus has to warn about the consequences and, and coming judgment upon people who disobey God and, and don't follow his, his plan and don't follow and accept Christ. Um, but what if Jesus was here and, and he's not using hell and Gehenna's a little old school for us, we're not super familiar with it. So what if he instead uses this, this place, Auschwitz? I mean, is that, does that word bring to mind to you a negative situation, an example of kind of how tragic human history can get if left to its own devices? Does it evoke some fire imagery? Is it a place where, again, I, I mean, I don't know, but you're probably not going to want to, like, build a house there. What if Jesus in Matthew 5, the first time we ever see this word Gehenna, what if instead of him saying, look, it's better for you to cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin or gouge out your eyes if they're causing you to sin, than to go to Gehenna. What if he says it's better for you to, to, to maim yourself than for you to go to Auschwitz? Or earlier in Matthew 23, he, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, you travel the world to make one convert, and once you convert them, you make them just twice the son of hell that you are. What if instead he goes, you're so hypocritical, and your faith is so deformed and out of touch with the desires of God? that when you make a convert, they become just another child of Auschwitz? Or, or what if Jesus is critiquing religious leaders who've, who have lost the plot, and he says, how do you expect to escape the coming punishment of, of Auschwitz? You can see, right, why this place, this story, this history is an easy metaphor for judgment. It's a, it's a, it's a good way to describe what happens when God gives people over to their sin and the kind of natural judgment that human beings bring on themselves. It's an easy way to shock people, to really give them a dire warning so their ears perk up and they listen, maybe in a way they wouldn't have listened otherwise. I think this is what Jesus is doing when he, he uses this Gehenna language, when he's talking about hell. He's, he's warning people. He's He's pointing out to people that they've, they've gone off the track. Now, when Jesus preaches about hell, 
oftentimes we run into this question. What exactly is it like? Like the metaphors are different, right? Is it fire or darkness? Is it like seemingly like you just get burned up or are you like weeping and gnashing the whole time? There's a lot of different diverse metaphors he uses. But what if we ask a different question? I think this might be a more important question. Before we ask this question, what is exactly it like? What if we asked it, what made Jesus reach for that word? What made him so mad that he would go, this is what might be coming for you? What is it about humanity and the decisions that humans can make that really gets him this fired up to reach for that strong language that fits the occasion? Well, if you were to ask me as a kid growing up in a just very normal, traditional Christian environment, I would have said, it's somebody who's not a Christian. And somebody who doesn't believe the things that I believe. Somebody who doesn't go to church. And there are a couple texts when Jesus is preaching about hell that seem to reference it's because you're not believing and following me. But perhaps surprising to you, they are the minority. Usually it's something else that gets Jesus to ratchet his, his kind of frustration level up high enough to where he starts to warn about Gehenna, some kind of Gehenna fate. You know what these things are? Social evils. The lack of love from one human being to another. It's not necessarily just individual personal morality. It's not the type of language you use or the type of music you listen to. The things that seem like the most important things to God when I was growing up, listening to preachers. I went through and, 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 and wrote it out for you. Here are the five things. Jesus preaches hell in response to these five things. Number one, when people are harming children. I think it fits. People who harm children both create an environment where that child can suffer something akin to a Gehenna experience can feel that pain and suffering. And if anyone's going to come under judgment, it's probably going to be someone who, who participates and, 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 and walks and, and habits like that. Number two, those who fail to welcome strangers. This one might seem a little more odd to us. But this is one of the very few situations where Jesus says, I've got to go to 11 about this. The Old Testament, God is all over this all the time. The strangers in your midst, you welcome. You show hospitality. There's no test. There's no, there's no litmus. There's no, none of this. There are no other higher concerns here. There's a stranger. You help. Number three, those who fail to provide basic necessities for those in need. It's another one that seems kind of perhaps surprising to us. Number four, I'm going to whisper this one because I'm in Sugarland and I have a bank account. Not a big one, but it's there. Jesus preaches hell when he talks about those who hoard their wealth. I've got to make sure I'm not being too loud here. And I don't want to upset you or myself more than need be. But we'd like to think we've got a much tighter grasp on money. And Jesus seems to think money's always got the grasp on you. And in fact, it's, it's, it's those who, I mean, one of the most famous parables about, he used the word Hades here, but potentially a, a judgment uh, in, in the afterlife. It's about a rich guy 
And it's not because the rich guy didn't believe a certain thing. It's because there was a poor guy and he never helped him. And then number five, and this is what really gets it. You see it here in Matthew 23. Jesus really goes off on hypocritical leaders who use their faith as a mask to hide their complicity in, in the evil things that they are participating in. Um, so this is Gehenna. This is what Jesus is referencing when he says Gehenna. Jesus is not the only person at this time talking about Gehenna. There are other rabbis who have already been talking about Gehenna, and they also have different views of Gehenna. So there are some who write about Gehenna in kind of a Dante's Inferno way. It is the metaphysical afterlife type situation where you're kind of being tortured. Others talk about Gehenna, and they say, no, that word means an intermediate state, like a purgatory or a rest. There are some in this time period who talk about Gehenna, and they say, it's, 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 it's not eternal. It just matches the length of your crimes. So if you were this amount bad, you had a year in Gehenna. If you were this amount bad, you had three or four years in Gehenna. There was no one single agreed-upon definition of Gehenna when Jesus is talking about it, although it's a well-used word to convey something about judgment or punishment. Because there's no one single definition, it's unwise to think Jesus agrees with any particular one of those without actually having other evidence from what he says. And it's also unwise to just assume he has to agree with any of the others. Jesus, if you know this, he was a rabbi in his own, in his own might. He often disagreed with what everyone was else saying wholesale and just said, no, this, this is what I'm doing with it. So we've got to kind of take Jesus at his words, let him define Gehenna, let him do what he is doing there. I want to point out two things about when Jesus uses Gehenna. The first is the context. Um, Jesus lived in a time where the Jewish people at large thought they were still under some kind of punishment from God and were awaiting salvation. And they saw largely the salvation in nationalistic terms. The Romans were the enemy, and they wanted to violently overthrow the Romans. And if you were to ask a first-century Jew, or a majority of them, and you were to say, who deserves the punishment? They would tell you, the Romans, the oppressors, the evil empire. They haven't seen Star Wars, but they get it. And so normally, if you're going to talk about a Gehenna fate and a warning about who might experience a Gehenna fate, you're going to be talking about the Romans and the pagans. But guess who Jesus never says that to? Someone who's not a Jewish believer, someone who doesn't consider them on the inside of God's people. So Jesus, throughout the Gospels, it's easy to miss this, but he's warning the Jewish people that their way leads to death. He says things like, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. He makes predictions about the temple itself being destroyed. And these things, as I've mentioned, happen in 70 AD. Jesus has very practical, political, social predictions about the outcome of certain strategies and politics and ways of life, and they come true. In fact, most likely for some of the people that heard Jesus say, if you don't repent, you'll experience Gehenna, they probably actually did end up in Gehenna a couple of days after his death and resurrection. There's a good chance whatever Jesus meant by Gehenna, he didn't mean to exclude a very possible real present possibility. And this is how it's used in the Old Testament. So Jeremiah talks about Gehenna, and he uses it as a judgment that God might bring on his people through a foreign army. And when Jesus talks about the worms and, and the smoke and everything kind of still going on, this is language that comes from the very end of the book of Isaiah. 
where again, it's about judgment coming from a foreign army. God's people have disobeyed, and so they are judged. Jesus follows in this prophetic tradition. Jesus, if you, if, you, if you really study the Gospels, he often identifies himself with Jeremiah the prophet. He uses a lot of the same language. He acts out a lot of the same things. Jeremiah, incidentally, as a prophet, speaks the most about Gehenna. He uses it the most as a metaphor for judgment and what might happen if God's people continue to go the wrong way. So I think it's a very real possibility, if not the case, when Jesus is talking about Gehenna, perhaps the first primary reference is the actual, like, look, you need to change what you're doing or something bad will happen to you. And then two, notice again his audience, right? Jesus never tries to convert a pagan or a heathen into a covenant relationship with his God by warning them about hell. He warns people about hell who are too comfortable with their perceived status and who aren't going after the weightier things that God desires. If Jesus were here and he was preaching about hell or Gehenna or Auschwitz, we would be the ones probably upset about it. He'd be, he'd be pointing out things in us that we'd more likely not like to think about. But it doesn't seem from at least the Gospels that he would be protesting a funeral or standing outside a, a clinic or otherwise screaming at strangers who aren't Christians saying, you're going to hell. Here are the five types of people I've already identified. They're going for sure. You're one of them. Good luck. When, when Jesus talks about Gehenna, it's not really a prediction that he makes. It's not really like a guarantee. Jesus is not like, just so you know, I don't like you. And eventually, you're going to experience this, so you might as well start worrying about it now. It's a warning, which means it's an invitation. It's a choice that's given to someone. Perhaps this is why the language sometimes gets so shocking or violent. Because otherwise, some warnings aren't heard. Otherwise, it's easy to ignore. But it, it's, it's, it's crucial, I think, that we, we, we understand the, the purpose of Jesus' Gehenna language. It gets to the very heart of who Christ is and why he has come. There's a very famous Bible verse, John 3.16. You're probably familiar with it. And it's a super important Bible verse. It's famous for a good reason. But I want you to, to flip there as we close this morning. And I want to show you the verse that comes right after it. John 3.16, the passage begins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, pay attention to verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I'm going to say it louder for you in the back. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, which makes me believe whatever Jesus is doing or talking about serves the purpose of him not condemning people, but seeking to save them. Jesus is hell-bent on saving people from experiencing hell. And that works on a lot of levels. It's his mission. 
we flip the script when all of a sudden it's Jesus who's desiring or guaranteeing people to go to hell. When it's Jesus wielding this against his enemies. We flip the script when the message of Christianity is about avoiding bad news. No, it's the good news. And even these warnings, though dire and scary, they can serve to bring about life. They can serve to redeem. Someone who's faced with this warning or this choice, they have a decision to make. And the decision is, will they join Christ in what he desires for them? Scripture says repeatedly, God desires that all men are saved. All men and women. We, we often read language in the scriptures very literally, kind of medicalized in the Western world. So like language like even death and life. John talks about perishing and eternal life here. When the scriptures often talk about life and death, they're not just talking about two possible different states for a human being, one with a heartbeat, one without. It's often more nuanced than this. Oftentimes, life and death are two different ways of being alive. So when Moses in Deuteronomy 30 tells the people of Israel, choose life over death, he's not saying on the spot here, choose whether you want to be executed. He's saying there are two ways that you can live, and you need to choose one over the other. One leads to life. One leads to despair, destruction. There's a way of life where you are experiencing more and more wholeness and healing, joy, intimacy with the Father, purpose, freedom. But let's be clear, there's also a way that leads to less and less of all of those things, a way that leads to harming yourself and the people around you. And Jesus came to save us from that. When people ask me if I believe in a literal hell, as a theologian, I go, the answer is a little complex. But my short answer is pretty easy, yes. Because I mean, we live in a world where people are slaughtered. Children are hurt. People get trapped in cycles of oppression. And just to be really clear, it's not a metaphorical slaughtering. Not metaphorical abuse. Not metaphorical oppression. Hell is as much a present possibility and reality as it is a future one. In fact, I would say this. Whatever hell might be or the experience of hell might be in the future, it's not completely dissimilar to the experience of despair and destruction, a life apart from God right now. Again, I don't know if you've talked to this person who's, who's, who's been betrayed, who's been abused, who's gone through this horrific scenario in life. But, but here's what I can tell you. I'm fairly certain there are people in this room right now who can say with what I think some degree of confidence, I know a little bit what hell feels like. Now, it might just be a shadow or a foretaste, but in the same way that life is not something we're waiting to get magically at death, so also the condemnation is something that you can also start to experience here and now. Jesus cares about all the hells that exist right now, and he wishes to save people from them. Jesus cares about hell in the future, and he wishes to save people from them. Jesus takes hell seriously. Jesus has come to bring life. And so you keep reading in John, the, the next verse, and again, very interesting language. Whoever does not believe 
in him is, or whoever believes in him is not condemned, but watch this, whoever does not believe is condemned. What's that word right there? Already. So the life that Christ has come to bring, eternal life, which he'll tell us actually later, it's knowing the Father, it starts now. You don't get all of it, but you experience it now. You can experience it now. So also the condemnation for those who don't believe is something that's already happening. I don't think this is really all that controversial when we look out of the world around us. What happens when human beings give in to their worst instincts and desires? What happens when the people of God betray their loyalty to God and their responsibility to love others the way they have been loved? Well, suffering and despair and tragedy of epic proportions that we need some strong words for. We need to be serious about. And that we need to be committed to alleviating. Part of the church is joining Christ on his mission. Jesus has come to save the world. The church is invited into that. The church should be a group of people who are identifying where the hells are. And sometimes they're individual, sometimes they're community, social. And they should be going there. They should be alleviating them, ending them, redeeming them. In fact, when Jesus is talking to his disciples at one point, he says about the mission of the church, he says, you will prevail in your, in your purpose, and, and the gates of Hades, he used the word Hades there, won't hold up against you. This is language of an offensive attack. If gates aren't holding up, it's because you found the city. You sought it out. And you said, I'm going in. They tried to keep you out. You broke it down. You said, I don't care what the cost is. I'm going in and changing this. And this is what the people of God are called to do, to join with, with Christ on this mission. When Jesus tells us to repent, even with an exclamation point, I think so much about what that means has to do with the tone we imagine him saying it in. The intent of that command, the purpose of it. I think when Jesus, although at times probably angry and animated, I think when Jesus tells people repent or perish, it's not that angry street preacher judgmentally looking down upon you where you're like, I'm not even so sure you want me to repent as much as you just want this interaction right now. I think it's like the mother or father who loves their kid more than their kid can love themselves at times. And he's saying, I want better for you. The Gospels give us a scene of Jesus sitting over Jerusalem weeping. Why? Because it says he knows they're not going to choose the path of peace. Despite the warnings, many of them aren't going to listen. There's not something he desires for them. The message that he had come to bring, even at its harshest, is one still meant to be in service of redemption, hope, salvation. Could Gehenna be good news? Seems unlikely. But if you were to go back to Jeremiah and do a deep dive into Jeremiah, you'll find that like many things, God's in the business of taking things that seemingly are irredeemable and redeeming them. It is like his M.O. 
And in Jeremiah, Gehenna, consistently used as a horrible, horrible, horrible example, metaphor, warning, judgment. Something changes when Jeremiah starts talking about a new covenant. Jeremiah predicts there's going to be a day when God does something dramatic and new. He forms a, a new covenant between his people, and it's going to involve transformation. He's going to recreate their hearts from the inside. And then truly his covenant desires to be their God and for them to be his people will be fulfilled. Well, in those same passages in Jeremiah where the new covenant is talked about, remember, Jesus likes to fashion himself after Jeremiah. In fact, when Jesus wants to explain what's going to happen on the cross as he goes to the table, do you remember what he says? He talks about the new covenant. This, is, this blood is the new covenant blood. What Jeremiah was talking about is what I'm about to do. And do you know what's in that Jeremiah passage? Gehenna one day will be restored. It has an end. At least an end with that sort of reputation and experience. Somehow, even Gehenna itself is transformed from a symbol of ultimate depravity into the beauty and the powerful, redemptive love of God. We'll talk about this later in the series, the lake of fire. One day gets thrown into the lake of fire. Hades goes into the lake of fire. Most of the metaphors for judgment have a terminus in the scriptures. Even when used or employed or given as a warning, there's an end point. Again, it can be hard to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine. I'm not, I'm not saying I figured this out. I can't tell you how, how, how God could take Auschwitz, for example, and turn that into something that's beautiful. I don't, ha- I don't have that right now. But I do know he could do it. And I do know if I seem to trust the story of Scripture and go along with the flow of it, it's going to be what he does. And my imagination's not that big. But every time I worship, it gets a little bit bigger. And every time I come to the table, it gets a little bit bigger. And every time I experience God's forgiveness in my life, it gets a little bit bigger. And the reason that I can trust that God loves me and Jesus died for me is because he, he died for John and he died for Jane. I know God loves me because God loves everybody. I know Jesus wants to save me because he wants to save everybody. I know even Gehenna is not outside of his reach. We saw in Revelation, Jesus resurrected, comes to John, and kind of showing off bragging, he says, guess who's got the keys to Hades? Yeah, I went there. The ownership's changed. What if even Gehenna could have a a good ending, some good news? My friends, the good news of the scriptures, the good news of our God is that because of Christ, his person, his work, and because of the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no amount of evil that has a shot in hell at separating you or I from the love of God. There's no situation unredeemable. There's no hurt that you've experienced or caused that can't be part of God's reconciliation story. And that even the most dire of warnings, when seen from the right angle, are a sweet whisper of love and an invitation 
life and eternal life and life abundant to freedom like you couldn't imagine. That's good news all the way through.